Welcome to the Relatively Damaged Podcast by Damaged Parents, where confused, forgetful, fallen people come to learn maybe, just maybe, we're all a little bit damaged. Someone once told me it's safe to assume 50% of the people I meet are struggling and feel wounded in some way. I would venture to say it's closer to 100%. Every one of us is either currently struggling or has struggled with something that made us feel less than. Like we aren't good enough, we aren't capable, we are relatively damaged, and that's what we're here to talk about. In my ongoing investigation of the damaged self, I want to better understand how others view their own challenges. Maybe it's not so much about the damage. Maybe it's about our perception and how we deal with it. There is a deep commitment to becoming who we are meant to be. How do you do that? How do you find balance after a damaging experience? My hero is the damaged person, the one who faces seemingly insurmountable odds to come out on the other side whole. Those who stare directly into the face of adversity with unyielding persistence to discover their purpose. These are the people who inspire me to be more fully me, not in spite of my trials, but because of them. Let's hear from another hero. Today's topic includes sensitive material which may not be appropriate for children. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as advice. The opinions expressed here were strictly those of the person who gave them. Today we're going to talk with Fred, relatively new to Toronto. He has many roles in his life, co-parent, brother, son, and more. We'll talk about how he had multiple concussions due to his heart stopping and how he continues to strive for health and healing. Let's talk. If you want to share your relatively damaged story of struggle and how you found hope, visit us at damagedparents.com and complete the contact form. Welcome to Relatively Damaged, Fred. I'm so glad you're here and you've already been giving me a tough time. So I think we're going to have some fun today. What do you say? I think this is going to be great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah. I am super excited to hear about your journey because as I was reading your pre-question interview sheet, it says the summer I died 20 times. And then I scroll down a little bit and I really started laughing. I don't know if you've ever heard of the movie Tin Man with Zoe Deschanel. It's actually a mini series. And when I read A Wicked Storm is Coming Your Way, learn to stand and say, move aside, loser. I'm the wicked storm. I just about fell out of my chair. Tell us where that came from. It's, it's just an attitude I've had to develop over time because so many unusual things have happened to me medical wise a lot were diagnosed the large majority weren't diagnosed when they should have been and my parents also had very very difficult lives so i sort of learned how to be resilient through osmosis just watching them fight their battles so okay so it came from watching others and then you learning mm-hmm. that these struggles are going to come and you've got to find your way through it regardless. And everybody has their own path in life. I think, was it Scott, the soldier that you interviewed? Yes, Scott Spears. I I think through his talk about meditation and things like that, I think it's sort of a similar principle. Everybody's 
got to find their own path. And one day your path is this way and the next day your path is that way and you have to adjust to it. Yeah. Which I think for me has been hard. I mean, Mm -hmm. even when you're in that struggle, is it, I'm thinking it's still hard for you. I could be wrong. And how do you do that? I mean, do you get to a point where you realize, oh my gosh, this is so hard and then pivot or how does that work in your life? It depends on the day. But I remember talking to one therapist and I was like, why is life so hard for me? And he's like, duh, because life is hard. So I have a much better therapist now. Her code name in my in the book that I'm writing, The Summer I Died 20 Times, is Dr. Plie. She used to be a ballerina. Okay. Uh, and then so she's been just amazing helping me through this. And I've got an amazing community of friends that I couldn't have gone through this without. So it's making sure you find the right people, good, good people to surround yourself with that do all these amazing little things. Like you come home from the hospital and you don't have to worry about cooking for them. But I think a big part of it is making sure you try and keep the right attitude. So I think we talked a little bit online about intermittent fasting. So I'm a moderator in a very big intermittent fasting group. And one of the most common pieces of advice I give on the group is you have to feed your brain as well as your belly. And you have to keep listening to podcasts and learning and doing all these supplemental things that sort of inoculate you. It's kind of like your vaccine against how bad you could potentially feel. Right. So when you go and listen to stories of struggle and find out how other people got through it, is that that's helpful to you? It is. Even if I can't adapt to a certain strategy, I can't meditate because of my various brain injuries. If I try and meditate, I just fall asleep. So it's not, unless I want to take a nap, that's not really helpful. So, and that's just not something I'm ever going to be able to do. And if I go to a doctor plie and we start to talk about this every so often, because it'll come up like every six months, do you want to give it another try? And I just fall asleep in her office. So it's just something that's not going to work for me. Right. I bet you walk out of those appointments refreshed. And exhausted. Oh, you know. really? Yeah. When I first started seeing her, it was a lot because I don't have a lot of nonverbal ability to read nonverbal. Mm-hmm. And... I've come a long way with that. So, you know, it's a constant session of 60 or 90 minutes trying to learn a new behavior or trying to reformat your brain to see something new that you haven't been able to see before. So what we've learned is a lot of people, or most people process their nonverbals in the background. It's not in the forefront of their mind. So because I don't have that ability to a large degree, I have to think about it consciously along with everything else that you're trying to think of consciously. So it made me understand why when I was driving, I was just exhausted because other people watch the road and I'm driving and everything that needs to be processed, where's the other cars? Can I change lanes? Where's the stoplights? And what speed should I be going? They learn to process that in the background. And I have to be aware of it all the time. So, so many things that I did just left me in a permanent state of exhaustion. Yeah, that sounds exhausting. So mm-hmm. explain to us the 
the struggle? Because from what I understand, there were some things that, that you weren't diagnosed with as you were growing up. And then there were some other mm. things that came along the way. Can you tell us what those things were? So maybe we can have a better understanding of what you're talking about. Sure. So I have a combination of ABIs, acquired brain injuries, which are the ones that come, you know, you're born with, or you have a stroke or something. And that's what happened to me. We learned eventually when I was born or just after I was born, they believe I had a stroke, but nobody diagnosed it. And so I had all these difficulties as a child that nobody recognized that I was having these difficulties with. And then when I was five, I took a real serious header while playing with a friend of my sister's. And I still have the the lump you can see on my forehead. So that was like concussion number one. And back then you didn't have any protocols for concussions or anything like that. So I was just sort of left on my own. Until I was in my early 30s, my sister was hanging out with this woman whose husband was a PhD. And he worked with people with learning disabilities. So they convinced me to come in and get tested. And I got tested. And they diagnosed me with a right brain dysfunction. So I forget the the exact percentage, but my right hemisphere was uh, performing at something like 50% of what it should have been. So it leaves you with a deficit all on your left side, just like when you have the stroke. Okay. So because the right side is injured and mm -hmm. it's not even that, because I'm hearing deficit. So do you have paralysis and things like that on that side of your body or what, how does it show Yes, but we're not at that part of the story yet. Okay, I'm <laughs> jumping ahead. I'm kidding. So yes, I do have, it's called hemiparesis. So okay. hemi means half. So half of my body vertically is has been affected by this. So my left eye is legally blind. Nobody's been ever able to tell me why I can't see out of this. But now we know my fine motor skills on my left side are just trash. You know, okay. normally they, I think these are the numbers, like your dominant hand is at X and your non-dominant hand will be like 30% less in fine motor and capabilities and stuff like that. My dominant hand is like 50% of what it should be. And my non-dominant hand, it, it, as I said, is just trash. I can barely do anything with it. So how do they even figure out that? I mean, it's, if you made it to the age of 30 before mm-hmm. anyone even figured out what was happening or what had. Oh, I'm freaking smart. I'm just freaking smart. I I have really good verbal skills Mm -hmm. and that can mask things. And, you know, most of my report cards from what I've been told were along. Fred would do much better in class if he would just apply himself or shut up kind of thing. Oh dear. So it's always on the student. It was never part of the teacher's skill set to say, hey, maybe there's something wrong here. Maybe there's a reason he can't do this. Maybe there's a reason he can't write script. Maybe there's a reason he doesn't understand colors and stuff like that. So finding out that there was something actually wrong was a huge relief. And I spent, I call these guys the brain trainers. I spent probably two and a half years with them trying to reformat my brain. So that was a huge accomplishment, but they never told me, and it was probably beyond their skill set at that time, what exactly the right hemisphere dysfunction did to me. Right. So we would do all these puzzles and things that you would do with stroke victims to try and force your brain to activate different pathways. And it helped a lot. I went from 
basically giving up on on having a university education to getting an MBA with a double major and eventually becoming a professor. So congratulations. Um, That's a huge accomplishment. Thanks. Sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. And I would come away from those brain training sessions, like just wiped as wiped as I feel coming from Dr. Play. Now it was nothing compared to when I was starting off with the brain trainers. And sometimes the exercises would be so difficult that I would get nauseous and and I'd have to lie down in the office 20, 30, 40 minutes before I could get up and leave at the end of our sessions. Wow. That's really hard. And you kept pushing through this. Yes. And, you know, it was a goal. It was a goal. It was supposed to lead me to an end, but it sort of only took me part of the way there. So I still had a bunch of dysfunctions. I didn't gain any extra abilities with the left side of my body. My vision didn't clear up or, or anything like that, but I was much better than I was before. And then I started working with Dr. Plie and then the storm came. Tell so us about your the, storm. The storm came in the summer of 2009. And this is the basis for the title of the book, because that summer I did actually die 20 times. We know for a fact my heart stopped for a significant amount of times, at least 20 times. It started with me thinking I was just passing out randomly, and they couldn't find anything in the hospital. I'd go and they would do the standard test. So here's a fat white male. So he must have been having a heart attack. So they test for the heart attack and they wouldn't see a heart attack. So they test for enzymes because your heart muscle dies and stuff like that. And those were really the only tests they kept running on me every time I came in. They couldn't figure anything out. Eventually, I was in one of the hospitals on an extended stay, and they put a Holter monitor on me. So that's one of those portable monitors that monitors your heart. And I had a couple of episodes that they actually caught on tape, and they finally analyzed them. And a doctor comes running into the room, and he goes like, holy shit. Your heart's been stopping. <laughs> what did what that feel like when he said that? Well, you know, I was so battered by that time from oxygen deprivation and hitting my head on all sorts of things. So I already had multiple concussions and I was pretty loopy at that point. I mean, the the thing, I would hit my head on curbs. I would hit my head on pavements. I would hit my head on, you know, a counter, a sink counter and stuff like that. So so you would I, be standing and your heart would stop and it just would stop, period, anywhere. Anywhere, yeah. I'd be afraid to leave my house. Were you afraid to leave the house? You start to feel that way, especially when you've got a doctor misdiagnosing you. So I woke up and emerge at this hospital and I look up and I see someone who to me looks like the clone of Osama bin Laden. And that's not what you want to wake up to. And he diagnosed me with something called vasovagal syndrome. So we have the vagus nerve, which is our primary superhighway nerve. And if you've heard of people who like pass out when they see blood or those types of things, that's vasovagal syndrome. And you usually get it, you know, in your early teens, it starts to manifest itself, not in a 45-year-old man. So that was a wrong diagnosis. So he thought that that was just going to keep happening to me. And I should perhaps get one of those styrofoam helmets and walk around with that for the rest of my life until they, they caught it on tape. 
and found out that, oh my God, you have a heart condition here that we have to fix. And how are we going to do that? Well, you need a pacemaker. So my cousin's an internist in Winnipeg, which is where I'm from originally. And I called him when this was happening and he diagnosed me in five seconds over the phone. And I went to the resident on duty at the time and I said, I need a temporary pacemaker. This is what's happening to me. And she says, how do you know? I said, my cousin told me, how does he know anything? Like they totally discount the small town doctor uh-huh. and, and everything. And we could have gotten way ahead of this, but we didn't. So they scheduled me for a pacemaker surgery. So eventually and, they did schedule you to get it. Yeah. Like as soon as they saw that my heart was actually stopping, they said, this is what we've got to do. And so wait, okay. I'm sorry. I just want to understand. So your cousin, you had talked to him a months before or after you uh, found out or just after I was introduced to Dr. Bin Laden in the emergency okay. Okay. and he said I was going to have this so got it and probably 7 days later is when they put the Holter monitor on me okay. and and then there were budget cuts so that was a friday that they put it on me friday afternoon i had two incidents in the hospital they didn't have any staff to read it until Tuesday afternoon because of budget cuts. So I had a number more incidents while I was in the hospital. And once they realized what was happening, I was put on strict bed rest. I wasn't allowed to wander the halls and annoy any of the other patients and that sort of thing. (laughs) And being with your personality, I think that was probably a tough one for you. Yeah, I was far and away the youngest person in the ward. And some of the people I met there were just heartbreaking. Like they knew they were dying. I met one guy with a virus in his heart valves that they could do nothing for. They couldn't operate. They couldn't give him a vaccine. They couldn't do anything. So he just stood at the end of the hall looking out a window, just like, is this the day? Is tomorrow the day? Like, My heart breaks for him. That's hard. Yep. Mine too. So as you can see, I get a little emotional just even telling yeah. his story. Yeah. So So they scheduled me for a a pacemaker surgery and the surgeon, they only had one person who does this at this hospital. He was going on vacation. So they, they snuck me in for his last procedure before he went on vacation, which is sort of like when you book the last airplane leaving the airport. Like if that plane goes down for mechanical reasons, you're screwed. You don't have a flight. So I wasn't thrilled that I was going to be his last patient. Then they left me in my room. I thought they should have put me in ICU or something. And I had two more incidents right before that. So one, I woke up and there was probably 10 medical people in the room and they were about to hit me with the paddles. So, and the paddles wouldn't help really because my heart needs a constant source of electricity. Those just give you one jolt. Okay. So it, I tried to explain that to them. They also wouldn't listen to me, which is why they wouldn't give me a temporary pacemaker. So I woke up for whatever reason, my heart started again, and they're all very, very relieved. And about four hours later, it happened again. So this time, they actually took my roommate out of the room and docked him in the hallway. And there were even more people. And they're about to hit me with the paddles again. And, and my heart started beating again. And it was at that point they said, I don't think we should leave you alone and we should probably bump up your surgery. Like, you think? 
So <laughs> they carted me off to ICU and I had really, really good care in ICU. And then they, I think they bumped a couple of other patients to, to get me in early. And it was a brutal surgery. They Worldwide, they do about 800,000 pacemakers a year. So it's a pretty common surgery. And I think partly because I was so trashed going into the surgery, but something happened in the surgery and we don't know what, but I know by the way I came out, something happened and we haven't seen the files yet. So, and this is 2009. So there's, you know, a whole conspiracy theory behind this area 51 kind of thing. So you've just felt that much different after, is that how you know, or what? If you want to share your relatively damaged story of struggle and how you found hope, visit us at damagedparents.com and complete the contact form. So you've just felt that much different after? Is that how you know or what? Yeah. I mean, think the worst hangover you've ever had and multiply it by multitudes. Okay. So I eventually got a really good cardiologist closer to where I live. And, and I asked them if I should have been that trash because I've seen like 80 year olds coming out of the hospital the next day and they're just like all perky and happy and everything. No, nothing like I was. And he said, yeah, something wasn't right with what happened. Okay. So, and you're so, still waiting on those files. Which may or may not come, but I've seen other files from my other surgeries and they really gloss over most of the stuff that goes on. So my next surgery was even more fun. So you uh, had to have another one. I actually have two functioning pacemakers. Okay. Because they keep failing on me and I'm hundred percent dependent on the pacemaker to stay alive. So when it fails, I fail. I'm told there's like only eight people in the world who have simultaneously functioning pacemakers. It's a real oddity. It's part of my story. So hopefully yeah. I'm going to end up in the New England Journal of Medicine or something. That would be fun. Um, I didn't even know that was possible. Do you know how that works? Or they're just both working at the same time so that if the heart stops or I don't know really how they work. So I can give you a quick pacemaker lesson, or at least my pacemaker. Yeah. So there's dozens of types of pacemakers that do different things. And then there's defibrillators, which are like the paddles. I don't have a defibrillator. I just have a pacemaker. And my condition is called a full AV block, atrial ventricle. So there's a little node in your heart muscle that sends electrical signals that tells your atria to beat, and it pushes the blood into your ventricle, and then it tells your ventricle to beat to push the blood out into your body. Something was going wrong with that transmission system. It it was dying. And when it started to go clunk, I was getting maybe five heartbeats a minute. And, And then fully stopped. So the pacemaker replaces that. The pacemakers can sense things. So they know like, if you want to ride your bike, your heart has to be faster. If you want to go upstairs, it has to be faster. When that ceases, it knows to go back to normal. So thank you. I appreciate that. You're welcome. So about four years later, all my symptoms started happening again. And because pacemakers almost never fail, nobody knew what was going on. But I ended up in the hospital again, and they figured out that one of the pacemaker wires was cracked. The insulation cracked. And they think something, this is back to the conspiracy theory area 51, something must have gone wrong in the first surgery where they somehow put a tiny crack in. They had difficulty 
threading the wire through the veins and, uh, and it got worse and worse and worse. So I had to go in for a second surgery. And the simple plan was they were going to put in a new wire. When that happened, I coded, I didn't realize they do this while you're awake because my first surgery, I'd been fully asleep. Wait, you're, they've got your chest open and you're awake? Yeah, it's just a little slice. It's not like open heart. So okay, I, I think it's a slightly more powerful kind of uh, lidocaine that you mm. use when you're getting your teeth worked on. But I wasn't comfortable right from the get-go for a lot of reasons. And I started having a little bit of anxiety and they started to open me up and I knew the pacemaker was failing right then. And I said something like, oh, fuck, I'm gone. And then I was gone. And it was just the craziest scene that you could imagine. So if you think when you see one of these scenes in an emergency room or an operating room in the hospital, that everything they need is right where they need. and Every person is right there and stuff. It's not. It's just bedlam. It was total bedlam. Yeah. So they aborted the surgery. They did give me a temporary pacemaker at that point in surgery, but they have to go through your femoral artery. Okay. That's in your leg, right? Yeah. So they thread the new wire up through there, somehow ending up in your heart. But because I was in emergency surgery for this, they didn't have time to use antiseptic or to freeze me. So if you want to know what it's like to get speared in the groin, I can cross that off my bucket list. That was unbelievably painful. So I couldn't imagine. Yeah. So they tried again seven days later and they could not thread the new wire through through the vein. The vein had collapsed. And so that's why they're guessing something happened in the first surgery that compromised the, the first pacemaker wire led to this storm. So my 20-minute procedure ended up taking three hours. The oh, wow. surgeons were on the phone calling surgeons around the world saying, what do we do here? And, and this right. is a really good hospital I was at. So it was kind of crazy, but they got me up and walking. And then it happened a third time. I can't believe that's crazy. <laughs> and then it happened a fourth time. So. Oh, man. Okay. I've got to ask, how were you feeling on this journey emotionally, right? These things are happening to you, like unheard of things. And not just once, but more than once. Were you ever feeling hopeless or desperate? Or what were your feelings? Well, I think it, in a way, it's sort of a blessing from all my head trauma and, and things like that. So I've never been super in tune with a lot of emotions. I'm much better now. I remember when I started with Dr. Plie, she would give me this paper that they use with like five and six-year-olds. And it's got all these different faces. It's like, okay. this is happy. This is sad. This is angry. This is perturbed. And all these things like a six-year-old would know what perturbed is. So you could see what it looked like on the other person. Yeah, and try and imprint it. Okay, so you're trying, by understanding them, trying also to get an understanding of what's happening inside of you. Yes. Okay, okay. So, that would be difficult. Just as an aside, there was one square in the middle of this thing for six-year-olds that was drunk. Like, I didn't realize drunk was an emotion. I didn't either. She's like, she's like I, I've never noticed that. Oh my God, we've got to get that out of there. Yeah, so, that's funny. 
I love that you see joy in every moment. It's in, it, it really does seem like that. I, I try. I'm pretty funny. I mean, I've done some improv. I've done some stand-up. I think just with our banter, a little bit witty. So yeah, it, it does help. So Well, yeah. So it sounds like that would be a real benefit, though, to not be in touch with that emotion because mm. it would be quite devastating I think mm-hmm. even from the emotional perspective, mm-hmm. if you if you're not having it, then I mean those situations that you're describing, I would be terrified in. I think I was too shocked and too PTSD, too post concussion syndrome to really process it until much later. And I, I think when I started writing my book and really got into it and started reliving some of these experiences you know it was making me very sad and very angry and very grateful and all all these things were coming which makes writing a book which is hard even more exhausting yeah so it was it's been quite an adventure it sounds like that would also help you because those feelings were coming up maybe dr play was able to help you identify what that feeling meant to you we haven't really worked on anything like that. Uh, A lot of what we work on now is more interpersonal stuff. I was in this situation, this person said X, I said Y, blah, blah, blah. And somebody seemed upset. What was really going on here kind of thing? Because my nonverbals still aren't super good. They're much better. But sometimes you just don't realize you're saying something and somebody else could be offended or is sending you a signal to do something else and you just don't know. It happens for all of us and maybe just for you more often. I don't know. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 I was out for a walk a few months ago with a friend in our neighborhood and we ran into a couple of people she knew. And uh, so we chatted and chatted. And then after they left, my friend looks at me and she says, oh my God, that chick was like so into you. And girls can call girls chicks. Yeah. Uh, I cannot. And I'm like, how do you know this? She was just staring at you like nonstop. I was like, I'm just oblivious. Yeah. So, which will, I guess, bring me around to things I know now about my brain injury that I didn't know before. So okay. I have something besides the hemiparesis, I think it's called enphantasia, which is I don't have the ability to visualize. So for most people, if you say, you know, visualize your favorite ice cream cone dripping down on your hand. You can see it just like you can see the recording or real life. I don't have any ability to do that. So it made me understand why my friends have such vivid memories of adventures we were on, and I don't. I can remember fact, but I can't, you know, I'd go golfing with my buddies and they'd say, remember that shot I made on the 14th hole? It's like, I barely remember that we played the 14th hole. So I I lose that whole part of the world. So when you say you remember facts, do you mean you remember facts from the event or you just remember facts from books? What does that mean to you? From books, from conversations, from events. So for example, when I was selling life insurance, I could go to a client's home and spend three hours with them and I would see them 10 minutes later in the mall. I would have no clue who they were. But once they told me who they were or where they lived, oh, yeah, you've got the lamp in the corner with the, you know, blah, 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 or that really cool dining room table and stuff like that. So that's another, I guess, cohort to the 
aphantasia is the, I have face blindness. Obviously, I recognize that you have a face, but I can run into people that if they just change their appearance in the slightest, I have no idea who they are. Absolutely none. Until they talk or say something factual, then I clue right in. So if I were to run into you or talk to you again, it would be helpful if I reminded you that we had this conversation. Absolutely. Okay. That's actually really helpful to know because I guess I don't always think about what could be happening in someone else, right? Mm -hmm. And I think part of that's just being human. And yet it helps me to understand that if that's what you need, then the next time we communicate... I need to remind you. So does that include an email or a Facebook chat? I mean, in any situation, hey, this is who I am. Do you remember? Tell me what level you would need. Well, I know, I know, like family members and stuff like that. But even the friend that I went on this walk with, I mean, we're neighbors. We know each other very, very well. I was outside the house talking to somebody else the other day, and she came walking from down the street. But she was wearing clothing and sunglasses. I had no clue who she was until she started talking to us. Got it. I could hear her voice and recognize things. Some people I'm better with than others. Maybe don't take it so personally when someone doesn't recognize you in a totally different environment from which they're used to seeing you in, or if you've Mm -hmm. changed your appearance significantly. That actually makes sense. That makes a lot of sense because... If I walk around with this expectation that people are going to remember me, and yet what if their brain works similarly to yours? Mm -hmm. Or doesn't work. You're so witty. Then I don't have to take it personally because I'm more likely to take it personally. And I'm not sure with your brain dynamic, do you take things personally? Not so much. Right. So it would be kind of, that would be a foreign, foreign idea to you, right? Yeah. And I don't know if you've ever been with someone and they try to introduce you to a third party, but they don't tell you who the third party is because they don't remember the person or the person's name or anything like that. So it's, it's actually pretty common. So if I'm in a situation like that where somebody doesn't introduce me, I'll just say, hi, I'm Fred. You are to take the, the pressure off because it is a, an awkward social situation all around. And if I don't recognize somebody, I'm like, please help me out. I'm having a moment. I don't go into the whole who the hell are you? (laughs) Right, right. And it's okay not to recognize someone. And I think, Mm -hmm. at least for me, that I get more mad at myself for not being on point, if you will, or being Mm -hmm. perfect, that I don't give myself that grace. And it sounds like you've learned to just be like, hey, this is just how my brain works. And you might even Mm -hmm. reintroduce yourself and say, hey, I'm Fred. And they may be like, oh, man, take off their sunglasses. All of a sudden, maybe you recognize or you hear their voice and they say that more of the story, right? Not the sunglasses coming off. And then it's like, oh, okay, yeah. And then they get it. Yeah. I'm pretty recognizable because I've got this flaming orange hair and, you know, I'm stocky build and so people tend to remember me. It's right. not often they don't remember me. So Okay. But they would, but as far as like being someone that puts the pressure, like me, I put the pressure on to remember and mm-hmm. I'm supposed to remember, I'm supposed to do this after talking to you and realizing it's pretty normal because you said, guess what? This is actually pretty normal for most people. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, well, that helps me relax a little bit and maybe mm-hmm. I don't have to be so worried. 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, we do worry about stuff way more than we need to in general. Right. <laughs> so like, I had probably 2,000 students over my teaching career, and I could not tell you the name of one of them. Like, they were all face blind to me. So I'd go from class to class. And occasionally, when I'm out and about, a student will come up to me and say, sir, sir, Fred, how are you? And blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, help me out. Who are you? And they say, oh, I took your economics class in 2009 or 2012 or whatever it was. I'm like, oh, gotcha. Okay. I, I really don't. But if they want to tell me I was the greatest professor they ever had, uh, I'm not going to stop them. I think that's a great plan. So what are, if there were someone going through something similar as you, or even if they aren't, three tips or tricks to get through life or tools that you want, you would, you have found helpful in your own? Well, I think probably everybody should have some sort of therapist. In the Old Testament, it, it talks about you should have a rabbi. Everybody should have a rabbi, somebody to bounce things off of and get another perspective, preferably somebody who's wiser than you and sees the world differently than you. Because if you just have people giving you the same perspective all the time, it's pretty hard to grow. Second, you you have to keep filling that brain with positive stuff. I mean, take that edge off any way you can. If it's exercise or cycling like I do, or like Scott does, if you can get into meditation or self-help books, whatever, you've got to keep doing that. And and my third that I didn't know about when all this was going on is intermittent fasting. So the people listening can't see that this is the book Fast, Feast, Repeat from yeah. Jen Stevens, New York Times bestseller. She's my fasting guru. I moderate in, in her group, answer you know, thousands of questions on intermittent fasting. It's, as one of my cardiac doctors said, it's the most powerful non-medical intervention that exists in the world today. And I've done more healing to my brain, to my body, from all the trauma, from intermittent fasting than everything else combined. Yeah, it sure is a great tool. And it's mm -hmm. it's spoken of in scripture. I mean, it has been mm -hmm. used for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah, but now we know that it does things that they wouldn't have had any idea about back then, about the healing powers and stuff like that. It may not sound like it, but I'm fasting right now. Yeah. No, and we're having a great conversation. In fact, my fast is up. And when we get off this Zoom, it will be my mm -hmm. breakfast. And it's almost noon here. So I'm with you. I, I, I'm in the middle of a 45. Okay. So yeah. I finished eating last night. And at our Friday night dinner tomorrow, that's when I'll, that's when I'll break the fast. Nice. Longer fasts are incredibly healing. Physically. Yeah. Do some research. Don't try it without a doctor, all that great stuff. Make sure yeah. that uh, you've got a lot of support, you know, and also double check with clinicians. And I'm saying this for the listeners to, to make sure mm -hmm. that it's something that your body can tolerate before yeah. you start. I have a huge medical team because we haven't even gone through all my problems yet. I went to see a cardiologist and I was waiting in the exam room and he threw this book at me, The Obesity Code by Dr. Jason Fung. Love and that he book. said, buy this, read this, do this, but not until we check with all your other doctors. So we had to, he had to send a letter out to six other doctors getting the buy-in from all of them. That's awesome. So you've got a team that's yeah. supporting you and it sounds like you've you noticed a difference that you do feel better physically and you have more energy, I'm thinking. 
my brain is clearer. I've lost a ton of weight. I don't know exactly how much because I don't weigh. But I think when I started this almost intermittent fasting almost three years ago, I was a size 48 pant and I've just ordered size 38. Congratulations. Thank you. That's an amazing feat. And so, yeah, having all that extra weight off probably makes it easier to move as well. Yeah. I don't have an ache or pain in my body anywhere. And I played hockey. I played rugby. I played football. I was fat. I mean, at one point I was 340 pounds. So my body took a real beating. And today there's no evidence of that whatsoever. That's awesome. Except that I keep dying. Well, I'm sure glad that I got to meet you between dying times. (laughs) You're welcome. I got a smile out of you. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Fred. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for having me. If you want to share your relatively damaged story of struggle and how you found hope, visit us at damagedparents.com and complete the contact form. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Relatively Damaged by Damaged Parents. We really enjoyed talking to Fred about how he has learned to manage his challenges. We especially liked when he explained how intermittent fasting has helped him with the right clinical team. To unite with other damaged people, connect with us on Facebook. Look for Damaged Parents. We'll be here next week, still relatively damaged. See you then.